Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I'm one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I'm one half of Wannabe Games, and I make TTRPGs and other games. And I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hello, Craig. Hi, Jess. I am Craig Campbell. I am the owner of Nerdburger Games, and I design and publish role-playing games as well. And uh, we are here. Kind of a normal time for us, bright and early for our guests. Starshine, hello. Hey, good morning. <laughs> Thank you for having me back, but it would have been nice if you could have waited a couple of hours. But No, impossible. <laughs> In fact, the day is over. We only get two hours on this side of the, on this side of the country. We just get uh, just a couple hours and then ah. that's it. <laughs> then, then the day is over. Well, we dictate to our guests. We, we we contact them and say, this is your time slot. Show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, yeah, it would be, nice, it, it would be nice if you knocked before you came into my bedroom to wake me up to tell me that, though, <laughs> just for the future. Just saying. <laughs> well, although we know everything about you, including your sleep schedule and where you live <laughs> and where your bedroom is located, <laughs> what can you tell our audience? What can you tell our audience about yourself? I'm Starshine. I am uh, someone who designs role-playing games that can be played on top of your table, which I know this is very new, and I'm sure it's, I'm, it might catch on. But I make games of all sorts, and uh, some of them are good, some of them are all right, and at least one of them has been highly reviewed, but who knows? Well, thanks for coming back on the show. You've been on a couple times now. And- yeah, surprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> surprisingly because of us. <laughs> Just surprisingly in general, I don't get invited back places very often. <laughs> um, and we have a, a GMing topic and a, and a design topic for today. Craig, what's our GMing topic that we're going to get into at the top of the hour? GMing action. Capital A, action. Action sequences. Fast, furious. We're going to do everything we can with this in the time that we have. Um, as I was outlining this, I have an outline that's three times longer than my normal outline of things that came to mind. So we may not get to everything. This might be something. We'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, like just G- as a GM, like many of the games that we play, not all of them, but quite a lot, have uh, some amount of action sequences in them. And those are often violent combats, but they can be other things like chase sequences or anything that is sort of high stakes, very physical with some sort of a time limit. Um, or you know, a ticking clock feature that's built into them, oftentimes like heists and things like that can be very action-oriented because the characters have to get things done very, very quickly in order to get away. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to just kind of dive into all sorts of thoughts about GMing action in uh, all its many forms. Starshine, what, what made you pick this topic? Uh, I, I love uh, action in general. Um, I'm a big fan of old kung fu movies and all that kind of stuff. I've recently been going back through Cynthia Rothrock's films, so it seemed like it was a, a perfect moment for me to finally use that knowledge in a way that feels productive. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what are your thoughts? What's your experience GMing action? Honestly, I think there's so much of these action scenes, are, as we said, are very varied, uh, but there's a long history of different ways of pulling them off in film that you can sort of consult with. To start, I said my most, my biggest tip, if I had to give one off the top of my head, would be to remember detail when you're GMing. Because a good action scene is more than just the characters doing something. It's what's going on around them. So a really good action scene, that's your police stories and stuff like that, will have stuff going on in the background when the characters are having their action moment. And that can come into the forefront. So think 
what's what's the environment like is it are there multiple verticality levels like is there like a balcony someone's looking for and what are the people around you doing because the amount of times you'll see in sort of old school hong kong cinema you'll have people watch the actors from afar to sort of give the audience their hint of like this is amazing this is cool and then sort of a scene later one of those people will be pulled in front of a kick as a blocking technique so open up those <laughs> give those details to your players so they can use them. And it just makes the scene feel more alive. Because sure, a basic chase, like just say one man running after another, isn't that exciting. But when you're sort of pushing your way through fruit stands, yes. you know, the old man who runs is screaming at you, the, it the adds chase, so much more. Yeah, the chase um, of Smith chasing Neo at the end of the Matrix, where he's running through apartments and like we're, we're seeing the world and how what he's doing is affecting like this this jeep like as i recall he's like pushing people out of the way and jumping through people's windows and it uh you know it it makes the in the, the environment that makes the environment you know like much more interesting as well it's not just like people running on the ground he's like running up and down fire escapes and through apartments and on roofs and on across tops of vehicles and and that that sort of thing the players can't get the opportunity to do that sort of thing unless you describe what's around them like are there other characters are there vehicles are there modes of transportation that you know we, we talked about having like whole se sequences set on board a train like a, you know a chase through a, a train from car to car or on the top of the car on top of the cars would be a lot of fun or a fight that goes you know that pr progresses through uh, train cars or something like that all of my favorite action scenes are like really, really dependent on, I, I don't think I have any action scenes I've liked that aren't super dependent on the setting and what's going around the characters, whether it's the cool hallway fight scene from like the Daredevil TV show, or I just watched Bullet Train not too long ago. And there's yeah. <laughs> like all of the stuff that goes on in the train, everything's important. And that becomes like a, a, a plot point for lack of a better word within the fight scene. Yeah, they're having to use, use all the little narrow aisles and like the fact that there's a door there so you could potentially push somebody out. But mm -hmm. And even if you look at something like, say, Bloodsport, the like John mm -hmm. Van Damme film, which is all one-on-one -on -one fights, they still have the crowd there. And you'll, they'll often cut to that crowd to let audiences know this was a big moment. This was a big hit. Or, oh, this guy's obviously about to lose because this crowd know this fighter. And that's a, another great thing you can build in. It gives players these cues. Like, oh, you know, he comes out and the audience is like, oh, no, this guy. Like, hey, this is obviously an important dude. So, one, be on your lookout because he's going to kick you into next week if you're not careful. And two, this is going to be really cool when you beat him. One thing I will sort of throw out is that a really good place to look for when you're structuring GMing action is to go to professional wrestling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the sport of kings, as we all know. <laughs> The only sport where a man called Uncle Howdy can become a star. But how a man a wrestling... That isn't even a joke. <laughs> no, I know, I know. Oh, what a, what a weird world we live in, Bray Wyatt, you beautiful man. How matches are structured in... There'll be this general storyline going across shows, but each match will have its own storyline. And that there's sort of stock storylines every match is, and you can go and find a list of those and use them. But how they'll build, you'll have a sort of building up to a big moment called a spot and then have a moment for the audience to sort of take that in. Because if you do too many big spots, then it desensitizes the audience. If everything is awesome, nothing is. So, and you can do that. Just have build, 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 have a big spot, have a moment to rest, build up again. And you can keep doing that while instead of building this plot, say sort of one of the common ones is you'll have the bad guy working a specific limb to set up whatever their finisher is. 
Or, oh, look, you can't keep the hero, they'll try and cheat, but they can't keep the hero down. Think, what is the overall plot of this fight on its own? What is the goal? Is it that however hard the heroes try, they just they can't kill this person? Or is it this storyline of, hey, this guy who turns out was cocky, but he's now being totally overpowered? Think about these little storylines and how you're going to weave them in because it adds so much depth to the scene. Those are like the scenes that I struggle the most with as a player are where I don't have that information, like this information we've been talking about, where I don't really know where my character is, so I don't know what's appropriate to be doing, or I don't know what the purpose of this fight is, so I just feel like I'm throwing numbers at a pool of hit points. I I don't like that as a player. I should definitely not do those things as a GM and really make sure that I give my players some direction in that way. Oh, yeah. So I think a big thing that is moot is thinking about how characters move, I think, is very important in action scenes because we were talking about sort of the Neo chasing. What makes that work so well? If you look at how Agent Smith moves, it gives this impression of someone who is unflappable, mm. but also very, yeah, he's very digital. He's not someone who is, yeah, it gives the impression of he's not real. Real is in the Matrix. Oh, God, the fourth yeah. Matrix. Ne- Neo is bouncing off of stuff, getting, you know, like yeah. he's he's imperfect. He's human. He's he's bouncing off of door jams and he's slipping and tripping. In the same way, there's a very difference in, in movement between sort of a boxer who's seen his spot open is now going in for a big hook because he's confident he knows your block is down versus a street fighter who is clearly swinging for the fences because he's desperate. And play that in. That tells your players something interesting. If that guy's being tactical, then you've got to try and wait for your spot to get into them. You know, they can tell how to break through. Versus if they're swinging for the fences, you can say, well, clearly you've got them rattled. And that's something you can build on. Just think about these little movements. And this is something really stupid, but I think it really helps. Is when you're sort of writing action scenes and working them, mime them. So just mime them out like to yourself, to sit in your bedroom on your own, swinging at nothing, to kind of work, or get little, little action figures. I've got like a little set of them that I use to just help you work out what are those movements like? What is, how is he moving? Where are they going? And how are they going to interact with these different elements? You know, it's, it's silly, but it works. There is a reason, well, if you ever watch a behind-the-scenes thing of an action film, you will see the director moving the actor and having them just do one kick over and over again until they get the perfect sort of body language. I, I mean, I play, I play role-playing games. I'm not, I'm not that nerdy. I'm not going to be shadow boxing. I'm joking. I do that all the time. <laughs> At, after I watch an action movie, I'm like, let's pretend to punch. It's so fun. <laughs> I've been doing that since I was a kid. <laughs> I find myself thinking quite a lot um, Starshine, you brought up like movies and and I find myself thinking about like the the three act structure of of many films is just a good structure for a lot of sequences. You can take a, a combat or a, an action sequence and break it down into like there may be some um, uh, um, amount of foreshadowing. Um, that kind of lets you know, like there's something coming, and then there might be some sort of a setup where it might be an ambush or whatever the you know whatever the buildup is to the fight kicking off, and that's sort of the inciting incident where everything's about to change. Like the characters are gonna in a, in a movie, it's the inciting incident where the hero decides to take action to do whatever the story requires of them. And in, in a combat, it's like okay, this is where the fight breaks out, or in the chase, this is where the person says, okay, I got to get out of here, or I got to start chasing that person. And then during the course of the story, there's like little beats and little breaks where 
where where you can stop the action and have something else happen the chase goes on and, and the the person the person being pursued gets cornered they have to turn around and face their pursuer and then facing their pursuer they get into a little skirmish and that gets things turned around and suddenly they have a new escape route that they can take and so the chase resumes again or in a combat it's the same sort of thing where like you have fight fighty 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 fight and then there's a break while the villain is like monologuing to let reinforcements arrive or to let their super cool ability or their you know their their super weapon that needs to charge up waiting for that to charge up and so they're going to talk your ear off and try to get you to to to, you know get the players the characters to to hold off for a moment and the characters can do that too if you have like if you're playing a game where the characters have abilities that recharge like tell them you like you don't have to keep fighting during the recharge period like you could try other things you can try to like intimidate the the villain get them to reveal their plan um get them talking about things whatever it is and then and then do that a bunch of times and then there's usually like a big turn where like okay now is where we're in where we're entering the end game of the sequence um and you know the probably the best geek example of that is the extended series of action sequences that's the end of Avengers Endgame and the turn is Avengers Assemble like there's a whole bunch of fight there's like the you know everything blows up and people have to escape from the, the headquarters that it's crashed down around them and there's fighty 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 there's all sorts of stuff happening with the avengers who are there and then of course everybody else shows up and then it's like now we're into the really important end this is where this is where everything gets resolved and you can do that with with actions uh, with any type of action sequence with the chase with the with the combat with the heist kind of thing is it's the moment where it's like do or die it is make or break at this moment I like to put those things on clocks when I'm doing big fight scenes. Like there's a hellhound champing at its leash and it's going to break eventually. That's going to kind of signal kind of like what you're saying was act two, although I've never said it as act two of the fight or the climax of the fight, but giving them a clear like visual indication. Oh, there there's water filling up this room there. There are people in the distance coming, you hear the sirens, whatever it is, and then have an actual clock for myself to track that. This is how many turns or this is how much HP that the villain has left before this triggers. That helps me keep track of things because the thing that I struggle with the most as a GM is keeping track of everything and knowing for myself, keeping it all set in my head so it's crystal clear for everyone else too. Um, Definitely taking notes, giving yourself a timer, all of that, do that as a GM, even if it slows things down a little bit, you can vamp or have the players vamp for you while you're quickly jotting th- things down. And I think uh, the thing, it just is just, this is all for general GMing point in Learning House. Players don't notice those gaps as much as you think they do, because just how perception of our own perception of time is, when we're trying to think of something, it feels like it's years, but no one really notices. If you just keep keep the flow up, no one's going to notice if you spend an extra five seconds, 10 seconds, even a minute plotting something out. They're going to think you've got something really cool and you're getting ready for it. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Downtime, anyway, for questions and for thinking, I think is important. Like, I don't like things to slow down. I don't like people to agonize over a decision at the table. I want them to move quickly in terms of their decision making. But giving someone a little bit of time to think is, I think, important. Just a little bit. Yes. Sort of coming into that is I think one of the best things you do in action action sequences get your players involved. Like, be fi- feel free to stretch the rules a little bit to allow rule of cool to come in, because 
obviously very few systems have action mechanics that totally capture an action. Because that'd be too much to account for. You can't have a mechanic for every single... Like, go watch a Jackie Chan fight sequence and try and make everything happen there into a mechanic. The book would be 9,000 pages long. <laughs> like, oh, I've got to spin the broom around my head. That's a D20 plus D8. And so feel free to just, <laughs> if a player comes up with something ingenious, run with it. Even if that does mean you saying, that's not in the rules, but I'll give you something. There's a big market out there right now for the Jackie Chan combat simulator game. So, <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, the, but yeah, so much of those things are based on improvise, you know, are based on Chan going into a sort of a set and being like, I can do this with this, this with this, this with this. So much of that isn't planned, which is both beautiful and hell to work with, probably. <laughs> and, and it's amazing extend- to watch. <laughs> oh. I would I would I would say extend that to <clears throat> things where where depending on the type of game you're playing, if the rules are like, oh, this should really, really punish your character and be net darn near impossible. Um, you know, if it's in the fun of an action sequence, like if you're playing a really nitty gritty, you know, down and dirty kind of game where like making a, a, a really dangerous choice is a really dangerous choice, then honor that. That's what the system is. You know, that's the game you're playing. But if you're playing something that's more cinematic and actiony, like, you know, like you, you ask, well, can I click you know, the speeding truck? I need to get up to the front and I don't want to be shot at as I'm doing it. And I'm hanging off the, the back bumper. Can I climb with my back dragging on the ground underneath the vehicle until I get over next to the door? Well, probably you're going to get, you know, abraded into oblivion. You're going to get sanded down by the ground or you're going to get run over as your legs get you know swung underneath the tire. But if you're playing a game where this is supposed to be cinematic and fun, like make that rule, you know, whatever rules you give there, make that as a GM, like make, make it doable, make there be consequences if they really fail terribly, but you know, like, don't like just grind them into into paste unless that's what the game is supposed to do for people who make those types of decisions. But even, even with that, there is an option. There's the middle option there, which is if you don't think you think, oh, sure. For this game, you would get sort of sanded down. There is the option for them to get under there, like an elbow scrapes on the floor, which is enough to let you know, oh no. But hey, you realize that the bumper on this truck is held on with a blooming tie or something. It, you can give them that option. Like this wouldn't work, but that's a really good idea. Here's something, here's some other bits you could use to do something with. You know, maybe the bumper is falling off. Maybe you find that this is one of those old vans where there is an outside release on the back door, which would allow you to swing around or something like that. Do just give these options. Said the best action sequences always will use the environment in a way you don't see coming. Like I, literally, everyone I can think of top of my head will have some element of the environment. But something you touched on there, I think, is very important with action scenes: is consistency. How much can you sort of do before things get dodgy? For instance, you will look at something like so. There's a lot of Jackie Chan movies. Let's use those as an example because they're quite well known. In those, he can he can take quite the beating before he goes down. Like, look at Police Story, which is the best sort of film for this. You, you can watch it and go, okay, people get put through glass a hell of a lot, but they're pretty much okay afterwards. Now, versus, say, something like a more grounded kung fu film where one punch is enough to actually knock you on the floor. Okay. Keep in mind is try and keep that standard so players know where their limits are. Because having those limits makes it easy for them to improvise because they know then they know when an idea is totally out of pocket and when an idea is sort of doable but a stretch. 
Because so if you are interested in like look at Schwarzenegger's films, he can take bullets to the arm repeatedly and yeah, just tweeze them out and he'll be fine in 25 minutes. <laughs> Versus again, a noir film, a bullet to the shoulder, you're laying on the floor saying, Tell my wife I love her. <laughs> and if you suddenly swap those mid-fight, the players are going to be absolutely lost. And it's going to lead to situations down the line where a player will suggest something that kind of doesn't work because they don't have the genre knowledge there to be able to tell. Whereas you, I might think, oh, okay, so I know from previous fights that we can take a couple of bullets and be all right. Then my plan to grab a table and run at the guy with the gun, that's in within the genre to work. Versus, again, doing that in a noir film where you lift the table up and immediately big hands just shoot you in the face. It's a conversation. Yeah, keeping these expectations and sort of genre is like genre informing is such a big thing in all fiction. It tells us so much about it tells the audiences what to expect and what to know. So remember that when you're a DM, try and keep those genre signifiers there and clear. You should talk to it, talk to talk about it with your players at the beginning before you start playing. Here's the level of realism we're going for. Is everyone cool with that? Like we're going for die hard. The vents do, they go places that they shouldn't go that will bother Craig and his architecture oh. knowledge. Uh, you can do these cool <laughs> action movie things, or it's even wilder. It's fast and furious rules. You can fly a car to outer space. You can. But or, you can't beat the rock. He will just, he'll contract out of that immediately. <laughs> I have, I have a game called... <laughs> called contractually obligated to be extreme which is about the rock and um what's his name vin diesel yes 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 um and the other guy too because they did like there was like a rock and somebody else movie who was it i can't remember his name me neither (laughs) off the top of my head but it's called contractually obligated to be extreme and in your contract you have all of these things that you can and cannot do and one of the things you can and cannot do is you cannot beat the other person ever. So uh, just playing off the strips. But yeah, if, if I think the genre signifiers are great and specifically bringing up uh, a movie that everyone has seen or maybe even watching that movie with your group before you play and saying, hey, that that's what I like. We're going to play that. I am always a big believer of the media sample pack for before session zero <laughs> like obviously don't give people so much that they can never watch it <laughs> but i'm always i will always try and find like just a little bit or something be like this is kind of what we're going for then everyone comes on the same page and it just helps balance out any gaps in knowledge because yeah one person's action film is another person's not much of an action film like again look at the tropes of hong kong cinema action films versus American 80s action films. They're very different genres of films, especially action. Action is this weird umbrella genre for media, which covers, again, everything from Die Hard to Mirari Ninja, where everyone's a cyborg for some reason. (laughs) Or Heat. Oh, Heat. Or the one where it's Arnold Schwarzenegger versus the devil, that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Uh, something that uh, I, I thought about too, when uh, when you establish these these genre tropes, is that there can be, and and this is something that you, you can run into a lot of games. I've seen 
my share of i'm sure we've all seen our share of like D and similar games where it just becomes everybody starts you know everybody has their coolest signature moves or the thing that they're best at and they just do that over and over and we just run a combat where that happens over and over and and it can come across in chase sequences and all that sort of thing too but is like let the cool like if somebody comes up with some weird cool thing to, to that's like it becomes their, their trick yeah let it happen let them roll let them do the thing you know like let let, let, let it happen a couple times and you can you know, kind of fall onto like the rule of three where like after the, after the second time, now we're going to twist it on you. And now the one that hit me was, you know, you got somebody who's driving and there's, you know, the, the baddies are out on the street shooting at them and they're going to, they're going to fly by these people and swing the door open and pop them, you know, like, poof, and the person goes flying 20 feet and they lose their weapon and they're no longer going to be able to pursue and blah, blah, blah. Well, I do that once. Bah, bah, and then we fly, we're driving along and we pop, we swing the door open and hit person. That person goes flying again. And then they were like, well, this is great. This is taking out every possible pursuer. I'm going to keep doing this. And they get to the third person, they swing the door open and they pop the person and that person holds onto the door. And now they're right there through the window of the door, moving with you with a gun pointed in your face. So yeah, just like if, if keep in mind, like the players can do some really cool, interesting things. The, the, the NPCs can do that stuff too. That's the world that you've established. Like, would, would I, Craig, be able to do that if I got hit with a door? <laughs> no, but in a movie, I would. Absolutely. I really, I really like how you established that. That's actually a really neat little trick you did. In the, what you did with that is you, you didn't cancel out that cool action. You've established via that move that this action is cool enough that the enemy is having to adapt to it. It doesn't not work. It's that you've done it a few times and now they're getting they're getting clever to you, but you've still got to do something to put them in a weird situation. It isn't like uh, sort of like you. I think say in like a fantasy game, it isn't like oh I've got this spell and the and the foe's like no no counter spell didn't happen. The action still did something. So you haven't sort of left that player wasting a turn, but at the same time, you've established that, hey, these people are going to learn from what you're doing, so you can't repeat spots as much. I think that's a hard balance thing, and I've seen professional DMs and sort of big-named make the same issue. You never want to totally just no-sell something the player does. There has to be something to it. Just having, say, just having them blanker move is just teaches your players to not improvise which is why you get those situations we mentioned where people in fights where you just throw dice at a pool where you sort of just roll and because if you're not going to give them the chance to do things they're going to stop doing it. you're sort of teaching them this doesn't get you anywhere so just do it so yeah always try and hit that balance and it's it's something it's it takes I would say practice, but it's also this sort of unwritten rules that you kind of have to pick up on to learn. But yeah, you can come with these new situations to disincentivize players repeating things while sort of still giving them the hint that, hey, this was a good idea. There is a reward here, just not the one you think. I think Plus, also... if that guy ever comes back on the back of the truck, which rule of sort of Hong Kong, he will... You complain to that, like, maybe he's the one who got scraped up, so now he's got a messed up arm, which will come into his later combats. And yes. you can sort of hey, you actually did something really cool here. You, this big grunt is now injured on one side. He's very upset with you. <laughs> but you, you did have an effect. This wasn't just the DM going, actually, no. This was the DM going, 
sure, but this guy's slightly better trained. This guy has a backstory. That's 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 the thing that we haven't touched on yet is the variability of the enemies that you're fighting in your action scene. Because you could be in that fight scene where everyone is a faceless grunt who can go down in one hit and then the really big guy shows up and you do you try the same move on him and he doesn't even move his face and like varying the types of people that they're fighting from like again the 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 ninjas who just come in droves and you can easily best to the ones with the cool hair and the cool outfits to the main boss who can do all of the things that the pcs can do um, whereas like the grunts probably can't, they're not as strong, they're not as smart, they're not as fast, but the main villain, they might be as good as or even better than your your main characters, and you're going to have to be even more clever, and you can't be trying the same moves all the time. They do have a backstory, they will monologue. Um, I, I think making sure that you aren't just giving them, oh, we're just going to fight we're just going to fight orcs and it's just orcs all the way down all throughout this entire, and there's the same enemy with the same, the same hit pool and the same moves and the same weapons. Uh, and they're all named Grog, you know, no. One of the things I really loved about fourth edition D and D was the variety of, of, of the, the creatures. Like you would have a, you know, like the orc and there'd be like six different types of orcs. And one was a controller and one was a lurker and one was a, a skirmisher and they all had different abilities. They had a couple of common things that you, that the players could count on. And this is starting to kind of get into design. Um, but yeah, like that's uh, like as a GM, even if the game isn't built for that, you can also, you can just kind of house rule some stuff in, just design some stuff to go along with them. And think about what that says for store for storytelling in general. Again, uh, going back to the wrestling thing of having a fight will have a story, but it will play into the wider story of those two characters. Think what their combat style says about them and what it teaches them. So like you might you might see, say, the big bad knows all this stuff that his minions don't. There's a classic story there of the big bad isn't as confident as he thinks he is. So refuses to teach underlings moves, even when it will clearly help them. You know, he won't, you know, the forbidden style is only taught to his apprentice, which is a clear hint to the players that he's not he's not trusting people or they're not confident in their own style. They're worried about being betrayed, which can then lead to other things. Or if they're with different uh, orcs, where are they getting their equipment from? If there is this weird orc who's carrying what seems to be a sword that phrase comes from the town you came from, how did they get hold of that? Was there someone who came before you they stole it from? Did they used to be respected in this civilization only to go? There are so many little details you can play into with these variety elements. And even stuff like uh, when we talk about sort of the environment, how that will affect how people see the heroes and the villains. Like, sure, you can go and cause absolute chaos in a fruit market, but will that lead to the people in that fruit market no longer talking to you because you just ruin their livelihood. My cabbages. Yeah. Or in the case of, it's a classic <laughs> Hong Kong police movie trope you'll see of like, well, I, oh, you, we know you had to go and sort of kill him, but now you've annoyed the mayor because you've smashed up his lovely new car dealership. So we can't, you're off the case, which, you know, hand over your gun and your badge, which now leads to, well, I'm just going to go kick him myself, which gives the players new options because, you're no longer a cop, so you can go and rough people up a bit more. But, but at the same time, does 
lead to a change in the general storyline because now you have to act differently to get information. You can't ask a detective to do something for you because he'll tell you you're off the force. Think about how these little details come together. There's so many, like, I could go into examples for ages, but for how a fight is laid out, we'll tell a story without you having to tell the story. For instance, uh, one of my favorite examples, one of the, I would say one of the best films ever, ta- ever made, is Samurai Free, Jewel at Ganyu Island. It's, one of, it's a beautiful film, but you'll see how the hero fights different people leading up to sort of the main villain they have a very evenly matched fight because they have the same style. And it uses this to tell this idea of like, these two men would have been friends in another universe, but this war has put them on opposite sides. So by having them be really evenly matched, it shows, uh, it turns it into a tragedy of sort of the two men who were who are forced to kill when they could have been brothers. But you see, no one else uses that sword style in the entire movie because it's there to, so when when you see it, when for the first time one blocks the other, it is telling you there is a connection here. And you can do that. Have this fight, this weird thing that people are doing, have it suddenly get blocked, but have this reason for it that, hey, this person trained under your mentor, this person was part of your organisation, this person has been watching you, meaning that they, you know, they find you specifically threatening, but why do they find you specifically threatening? Think of all these little details. You don't have to sort of go as in-depth as this, but there are so many good storytelling opportunities there you could dig into. This is why with the notes comment, having notes you can go back to are great because you'll sometimes spot these details you don't need accidentally. Yes. Go, there is a thread here and you can bring that back up and pull it back up. But and it yes. makes you seem like you're like the smartest person ever because it's, you read advice from writers like novelists a lot like oh I had no idea that this was going to be a thing that came up so when I did my second draft I made sure to incorporate it and foreshadow it beforehand you had to pull those tricks in a much sneakier way as a GM but your players also aren't paying as much attention to all those finer details they're just not going to until you do pull it up and make it obvious for them and then they're going to be like oh my god yes golf club, my favorite golf neil gaiman neil gaiman quote of like the first draft is to write the book and the second draft is to make it look like you know what you were doing when you wrote the first draft exactly yeah it's true and but you don't get a first draft as the gm you just have to but but again it doesn't matter as much you you can make it look like you knew what you were doing the entire time by just doing it now your players will believe you I've never I've never had a I've never brought up a detail that had come up earlier and I just now realized that it would be perfect and the players are like well you just pulled that out of your ass no they've never done that they've always been incredibly impressed because they they fear you yes exactly (laughs) uh you are you are the wise wise sage at this point <laughs> uh, suddenly you get some sand out your pocket and throw it at them there you, you know the fight scene you were talking about starshine earlier reminded me of the scene between inigo and wesley and princess bride where there's a lot of conversation they're very equally matched um but you get a lot of you get a lot of character and plot development right within that right within that scene and i know we've talked about this throughout the entire episode so far but giving giving the action scene some room to breathe for things that are not just throwing punches or swinging swords, I think makes it feel so much more fun for everyone else at the table and maybe even kind of bending the initiative rules so other people can talk and monologue and reveal important emotional things about their characters. 
I think giving giving that some room to breathe, also a good time to take notes, I, I think is is vital if you are doing a lot of action within your game. I think a lot of people who complain about things like D&D, for example, is that like, oh God, this combat just took three hours out of our game time. We only had an hour of role-playing, but that three hours of combat should have also been role-playing. That's- Even, I've seen some people do this, and it's something I quite like, of having sort of initiative slots which are there for characters to monologue or bounce. Like if your players sort of are the type who don't do it naturally, I would just have an initiative slot, which is sort of your, after your spot, your downtime, where there is just, you can remind everyone that, Hey, how are you feeling? What's going on? It it is an old uh, Tokusatsu trope specifically, which Power Rangers copied of starting with a roll call going to a big middle moment then both sides get knocked back so they can monologue at each other 10 minutes because our effects budget has run out <laughs> but it, it worked i all i love stealing the roll call which uh super sentai uses all the time because it's such a good way for characters to sort of give a moment of emotion before battle like you're facing this person down you get one line what do you say and things build from that i've had characters develop catchphrases which works for them. And it kind of gives them a moment to go, what would my character be thinking at this moment? Like, do they think they can win this fight? No. So they're going to be like, well, I, if I die, five more will rise in my place. Or are they like, screw you, I'm going to kill everyone here. <laughs> yeah, I, Include those moments. And you can always remind players, if they're not doing it, to be like, hey, talking's free. I'm not going to, This is you don't have to breathe. I'm not going to punish you for like breath control. <laughs> I think that this is a good transition into the game design because I think that's something you could add into you a game that you're designing is an initiative moment that is specifically designated for the non the non-fighty stuff for the for the feelings in your fight scene. The vamping moment. Yes, yes. I I think that that would be really fun to just design as part of an initiative order. Right. Uh, right Right at the top of the order, first thing each round. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, it's talkie moment. Who has something they want to say? Well, I, I built, that was a part of when I built a, my homoerotic sword dueling simulator. That was an in, an crucial part of that. There is a point where it's like you clash and you end up locked swords and then you have to talk to each other for a minute. Then you oh, sort of push back and then go back. And it fits because that game is entirely about, hey, why the hell have you two ended up in this situation where one of you is about to die? Why are you in a sexually charged fight scene or a romantically <laughs> charged fight scene in the first place? Why I think you... that that's like so good about some of these fight scenes in general in action movies. Oh, they're they're great for telling all sorts. Yeah, uh, it is an it's an, it's an old film studies trope, but the sword the sword is the penis is remarkably common. <laughs> remarkably common. I mentioned heat the other uh, the a couple minutes ago, um, and. There's this comedian that I really like named Chris Fleming. And, and Chris did a video about how he was really just about Al Pacino being in love with uh, Robert De Niro. And I believe it. I believe it. I think that's <laughs> secretly what all action movies are about now is the love story. <laughs> yes, you knew if you sort of look into queer readings of these films. There's a lot of I don't understand. I don't understand my own feelings for you. So if I kill you, I don't have to deal with them anymore. Oh my gosh. Or yes. the Incredibles 2, as we call it in the trade. <laughs> <laughs> but to sort of go into the heat thing is would be my top tip for this kind of design tip is whenever I do a game like this, and I do it for actually even non-action games, 
is I make what I, what I call, there's probably a nice name for it, but I never went to school, so forgive me, a prototypical scene. So that is I'll either get a scene from a movie or a TV show, or I'll like write a short story or like a little screenplay skitlet for what I think the, the a, a good scene for this game would look like, and then go back and go, what mechanics are here? So for that uh, sword fighting game, uh, I took Revolution Galatina, which is my favorite show in the world, and I have to reference five times a week, outside I will die. <laughs> uh, and I was like, I took one of the big jaws of that, and look, how do the, what mechanics do I need to sort of capture the feeling of this jewel? Specifically how, and then you go from there. So do that, make a scene and go, and then go backwards. It's often great to remember, so what do I need to give people for them to get this emotional experience? I think writing that directly out in your book, like how to design an action scene in this game, like giving people, giving the GM a specific guide. I, you could pull from all sorts of things we've been talking about saying, okay, here's start off with this, start off with your goal, build top down and, and move from there. Um, and then the mechanics should always support that too. I think as, as the designer yourself, you should also think about your genre touchstones and think about what things that you like about an action scene and make sure to include some supports in there that allow the people playing to have fun with them to mess around with them i would say the uh, key thing to avoid when designing uh, action mechanics is try to avoid uh, overly specific mechanics you can get down and crunchy just it's probably avoid mechanics which only will only come up once in every five thousand sessions like, uh, for instance, let's say, we'll take another Jackie Chan example. Throwing a rock, you don't need a separate mechanic for throwing a rock and throwing a microwave. Both of those could be countered with grab item and throw it. The changeling is probably the worst example of this. If I have mechanics that only, will only kick in once every 12 sessions. So do try and hit, do try and think how many mechanics do I want my players to have and how many of them need something highly specific to work? Or would I be better having a mechanic more open, which gives the players more freedom to work with them and trust the GM to kind of know their own table a bit with those? Maybe I don't need to specify jumping on a van versus jumping on a car. The GM can work that out and there'll be a nicer reading experience for them to not have to sit, go, well, how do these two mechanics differ? One of the things, well, a couple of things that I'm I'm running into working on a design right now is I'm thinking I'm working on you know a fantasy game that you know shares some tropes with with D and D and some of the other fantasy games that are out there. But there are things that, um, and this is going to sound so fantasy you know uh, fantasy heartbreaker to anybody, <laughs> um, but there's things about like that that I'd like to have in the game that we've talked about, like in in the in, in a fight sequence in an action sequence where you have a opportunity for the characters to stop and pause and talk and if it's if it's a significant amount of time where the you know the villain can monologue or the the characters can can try to do something or communicate with each other a plan quietly secretly or you know something that's going to cause a pause is that for example in D&D and Pathfinder and games like that there's access to healing capabilities and if it's if it's if healing can be formed can be performed quickly and it is significant healing then that pause period becomes the time when like the cleric's going to start pinging everybody with healing and the bad guy's going to have their you know evil necromancer cleric whatever come out and, and raise up some more uh, undead or heal up the, the 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 big baddie well is that what you want this your action sequences to be in your game 
if it's not, then maybe the only type of healing that's quick is very minor little stuff that like keeps your character from dying so that you can continue to to do something. But you're not going to build everybody's uh, hits back up to the point that it's going to just extend the second segment of the combat. Like, yep, you, you know, you give some thought to the different types of fights and sequence in action sequences that you want to have and what the rhythms might be and where the pauses might be and where the different phases that 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 you might take place like we've been talking about with all of this and think about how the other mechanics kind of can influence that because you know i have very strong feelings about this game that i'm working on where it's like you know you're not going to be able to heal somebody up to full hit points in a minute you know or in, in in a round or two rounds when they have this pause in there because i like that's just going to stretch the fight out the idea is to have a nice character moment in the middle of the action and then finish the sequence and not have it be like starting over and also think about how the different roles link up because a big problem you'll see with a lot of those sort of heavier fantasy oh someone's going from the right uh those bigger <laughs> fantasy moments is that if that sort of open moment does allow healing then whoever's playing the cleric or the healing spell guy kind of has their action already pre-done for them. Yeah. So are they going to have fun with that? Is there options for them to do stuff? Is there options for them to do stuff outside of those moments? And it's a big, you see people going out to D&D and it happens a lot where you have a dedicated healer who basically every turn could just pick their moves via Tombola because all they're ever doing is healing. So do think of what role there is and make sure that everybody who has a role, if they have a specific role, gets to do something fun that can lead to the story. No one really wants to be the ambulance person who's kissing boo-boos and just pushing people back into the fight. Especially when healing, yeah, we said healing is cheap, so there's nothing you can really do with that as a character or a player, whereas if healing is risky or dangerous, you could build a story around that of like, should I keep pushing this person back out against this sword? It's a good idea. So yeah, just think about every role I think players will do and make sure that everybody's getting something fun to do and not just your biggest punchy dude. Everybody's moves have an ability to influence the action, even if it's not directly shooting somebody and hurting them with a bullet, I think is is really important. I, I also have never liked that where your only role is to heal somebody and that's that's all you're doing or you have all of your points in you like you really enjoy the role playing and 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 lying to people and all of that or you really like being sneaky and stealing things and then you're absolutely worthless in a fight and fights happen every single game but but these other scenes don't I think making sure that if you have various roles giving a specific avenue with which to use those skills in a combat, I think, or an action scene, I guess um, they are not always combat. Um, we did that in the means of magic where all of your fights, you can build off of any skill that you have. You just have to, you have to say what you're using. It costs points and you have to make it make sense. And that's all you just narrate it because I wanted to avoid the, uh, my little, my little weakling diplomat, is just going to sit here for 30 minutes while you guys do all this cool stuff? No, absolutely not. He will pen a resolution to the conflict while <laughs> everyone... That is a problem you see in so many games. It's just like there are vestigial roles that seem to be there because 
this is a role that people play and that role can't do anything in most situations. Uh, there are ways to avoid that. And to, one of them is if, you, if, you're, if you're dedicated to your crunch, uh, just lots of playtesting. Or to say, give those, give, open up mechanics to allow things to be used in different ways. Because what does the healer do in combat? Well, a healer is probably quite a dangerous person to be in a fight because this person knows how organs work. And could probably know where exactly where to shiv you to make sure it hurts the exact most. <laughs> like they're probably really good at just like that kind of combat because they know what hurts. So one good strike from them will probably leave you on the floor puking your guts out. So do think about how every role can play a part. And yeah, and I said I would all said with the um, space to talk, make sure that's something every player gets. Make sure there isn't one player who just has a phase where they do everything where everyone else has fun. Yeah, the, 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 the hammer and nail problem. If every problem looks, if, if you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So designing for the character to be able to engage in a lot of different things. And that means being capable of engaging in meaningful ways, multiple meaningful way, ways, ideally, in any action sequences that your game has. If you're, if it's a heist-oriented game, like every role, if there's like classes or, or, you know, skill trees or things like that, like every role has to have something that's probably useful in a heist in some way, shape, or form. They may not get to use it every time, but they'll be able to use it most of the time. Yeah, my sort of rule of thumb is that you should, every player should be able to do something interesting at least every once every sort of three turns. So about every 15 minutes of gameplay, you should get a moment to do something that's interesting. It doesn't have to be the spotlight moment, the cool big moment. It just has to be a moment where the player can think, this has an idea and do it. As an act on an idea they come up with, rather than being just going through a mechanical flowchart. Because you some things you can pretty much automate. That's the player a- should have engaged brain every so often. That's the hardest thing to do um, when you're writing a game is to figure out kind of what that action economy is like, like how often are people making these bigger moves? How like on their turn, what are they able to do on a regular turn? That's really something you have to play with a lot as a game designer. It's maybe unless you're writing something very silly. I, I just I was looking over contractually obligated to be extreme. I forgot that we designed it to look like a movie script. It's very <laughs> it's very funny, but it's also very very simple and that's fine because that works for that game but if I want something that's more I don't know more big box production more triple a TTRPG style the players are you know that your your readers they're expecting something from you in terms of how much thought you're putting into what the moves do and that might take several iterations as a game designer several play tests several sitting down and thinking like oh God, this isn't going to work because if this happens, it's just, if they do this one move, it's going to kill the entire game every time. Um, You have to to really sit down and think sometimes. I I can tell you, we did not sit down and think very much for this game, but that's because we were designing it directly on Twitch in an hour. (laughs) That's all we were doing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, I I think that that that's also very daunting to do because you want it to feel fair. You want it to feel balanced. You want everyone to have the equal, you want everyone to have an equal amount of fun, preferably an exact equal partition of the fun points that you have available in any whatever game. I think giving giving yourself a chance as the designer to also sit down and think and and not trying to 
just jam a bunch of stuff into into your rules that you would like without any thought into them. Yeah, yeah. Sit down, sit down, reiterate it, play test, all of that. That's a long rambling way to say play test your game. This is your game, motherfucker. <laughs> but yeah, to do things about those core concepts, like um, even stuff like what dice you're using. You know, how yeah. often does someone hit in this environment? And when they hit, how do they hit? Do they, you know, do you take direct hits to your health very often? Or are hits blocked more often? Think of all this kind of stuff, because they all lead to vastly different genre elements that you can build on. I would also say a big thing just to consider with, with these mechanics, and it's kind of a side thing, is your terminology. Do you have a look? Because sometimes you find out you're using a term that no one has used for that. It's a very localized term. So do approach people like, does this word make sense for this situation? When I say strike, do you what do you think of? What does that mean? Because to different people, that will mean different things. I'm trying to think of an example I saw recently. Oh, dra- drop kick was what, was what it was. Because for some people, that just means a really hard kick. Well, to other people, it means sort of the very quick flying kick. Now, having a kick and a drop kick mechanic to certain groups leave them going, what is the difference between these two kicks <laughs> versus someone who knows? I've got oh, very, very clear different moves, but try and sort of show it to people who sort of might not have your signifiers, so they can say that might need a different name because I can't tell how these two elements are different or why one is not the other. A mechanic that I really liked that we built into the Means of Magic is that we have there's stress in the game, and that's that's how you take your actions, and that's how you you reach a climax of the of the scene, whatever scene you're in is when you hit your stress break. But if the stakes of the scene elevate, your stress will refresh. You can kind of start back from zero when things become more dangerous. I think a thing to think about as a game designer is the, the plot and the narration that your characters will be going through or that the GM's characters will be going through in the game it's important to kind of nail down if you want stakes to escalate throughout your game you have to you have to make sure that they are still going to have the resources available they're still going to have the hit points for example or they're still going to have have the spell points um if if you want the tension to keep building up to a point so when we added these um like for example you're fighting on the side of the mountain everything's cool, everyone's running out of points, but then then this avalanche starts, everyone can kind of start fresh, so to speak. Although, of course, all of the narrative things that have happened in that fight have not gone away. You get a lot of your, your points back because the stakes have elevated. Now everyone's in mortal danger. Everyone in the scene has to deal with this avalanche. At the same time, you're still dealing with this fight. Really thinking about that, that kind of plays into how you use the environment with it within the fight scene or the combat scene or action scene as a game a game master thinking about it from the designer angle how are they going to deal with new elements that are added into the game what are you going to do to allow that to be fun we put a lot of thought into that uh i think it worked out really well and i think it lets people actually play with the environment which is an important theme of our game because the the theme of the game is about climate change and natural disasters oh boy well i've i've been writing all sorts of stuff down here as we talk (laughs) throughout this episode because um, 
it, well, it, even more so with this one, because I'm like in the brain space right now of figuring out what action is going to look like in this game that I'm pulling to putting together that is very heavy on action. And uh, so maybe maybe somewhere down the road, once I actually have gotten past just the first alpha play test that happened last <laughs> week, um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it in a little more depth. But uh, yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Thanks for joining us again, Starshine. No worries. I'm, I'm, any chance I have to talk about old Kung Fu movies, I'm down. <laughs> yeah, this has been a lot of fun. I, I, I want to go through and I'm, I dug up contractually obligated to be extreme. I, I'm glad I had the option to look at it again, the opportunity. Uh, Starshine, where can we learn more about your action-packed games? Uh, you can find me at starshinescribbles.com. There's a link to all my games and my blog and all that other stuff. And uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, where I do randomly talk about old movies quite a lot, that's Starshine Scrib. <laughs> Starshine followed by S-C-R-I-B, because Twitter doesn't allow me to have scribbles for some reason. Twitter. Twitter. Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me at wannabegames.com. Um, you can, if you want to pick up this game that's free, uh, which is about being an action hero and rewriting your contract every time you get hit by a bullet in the game, uh, you can find that on itch.io, wannabegames.itch.io, or on DriveThruRPG. It's free. You can pick that up, or you can get the means of magic for money. <laughs> Both of those places. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Jessica, or on Tumblr at, at Jessica, or on TikTok at JessIsAwful. And I'm at NerdBurgerCraig on Twitter. The games are up at DriveThruRPG. But it's also worth notice, noting that uh, Capers, Good Strong Hands, and Code Warriors all got offset print runs. Mm-hmm. And uh, Good Strong Hands is now back in print, and Code Warriors has arrived, and Capers is still there. So if you go to the store at NerdBurgerGames.com, there's um, the the nicer... Uh, sturdier versions of those game books and they cost the same as the print on demand one that you get through drive through RPG and you'll probably get it faster because it's just put it in a box and ship it to you as opposed to having to wait to print it. So uh, yeah, check those out. Uh, thank you for our opening and closing theme song, which is Avel by Steph Sachs licensed under creative commons. Thank you, Steph Sachs. And thank all of you for listening and we'll see you back here next time. Bye. Bye.